Imagine, if you will, this morning, the nearly unimaginable. To our minds, it would have to be a scene so surreal that it would have to come from a science fiction movie set in the future, something like the 1996 film Independence Day, where the aliens attack our nation, but in this new version, instead of us rallying and grabbing victory out of the jaws of near certain defeat, we are unmercifully defeated and humiliated. Our Capitol and White House are destroyed and burned to the ground. The Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial are left in ruins. All our leaders from all kinds of institutions, politics, our universities, medicine, our celebrities, our religious and spiritual leaders are either executed or taken captive and placed in exile in a faraway land. All American institutions of any kind, of any consequence, are left shattered by their attack and left like a heap of garbage on the street. And this is all done at the hands of our worst and most hated enemy. It would perhaps recall in us similar feelings to those we had on September 11, 2001, but only a hundred times more intense and leave us as a nation without hope and with much fear for the future and what's ahead. When we come to the book of Lamentations, as we do this morning, we find Israel in a real situation that is far worse than the fictional situation I just asked you to imagine. The capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, and its center of worship, the temple, have been besieged for 18 months by the military superpower of the day, the Babylonians. And in 586 B.C., they not only took the city, they either executed or took captive back to the land of Babylon, all the leaders of the people, the king, the princes, the priests, all were removed from the land by the Babylonians. But most important of all, in destroying the city, they destroyed and burned the temple of God in Jerusalem. Well, Lamentation reflects at length about these events. It is a dark book. If someone wants encouragement, do not send them to the book of Lamentations. To lament means to cry loudly. And there are five poems of lament in this little Old Testament book. The Hebrew title for the book is simply How, carrying the idea of how in the world could this happen? Or how can this be? Chapters 1 through 4 are acrostic poems. The verses begin with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's as if this is a book of suffering from A Z. While we're not sure who wrote it, quite possibly it was Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet for good reason, the book does not tell us, the description certainly fits. Why have this book preached on a Sunday morning? What point is there to read this book that contemplates such terrible things? Well, God tells us that all Scripture is given for our instruction in 2 Timothy 3. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the prophets prophesied of the grace 
that was to be ours and that the prophets served us and not themselves. Well, what does the prophet have to tell us here? What does God tell us in this heavy and grave little book? Well, I have four points for you this morning. Point number one, the judgment of Jerusalem is a result of Israel's sin. That's chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Point number two, the judgment of Jerusalem is a warning to all. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Point number three, the judgment of Jerusalem is brought on by God himself. Chapter 1, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 18. And then point number four, the great faithfulness of God proclaimed. Lamentations 3, verses 19 to 39. Now turn in your Bibles to chapter 1 and point 1 of our outline, the judgment of Jeremiah is a result of Israel's sin. In chapter 1, there are cries after cries after cries, laments, lamentations. But you'll notice God does not answer their cries. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has lost, the, she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation 
All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Lord, look and see, for I am despised. She who once was great has now become lowly. Note the contrast in verse 1. A widow in the ancient world is the symbol of one who has no one to provide for her. And Israel, who was a princess among the nations, has become subordinate, a slave to others once again. In verse 2, we see the friends and those who loved her for a time, they are now her enemies. They have turned against her. In verses 3 to 5, they find no resting place. God, who had given them a promised land in which to rest, but now provides no rest for them. These verses remind us of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God promised blessings to Israel for obedience to His law and curses upon Israel for disobedience to it. The very law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments and that Israel agreed to keep. The same law that Jesus summarized in the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself and is detailed in Exodus and Leviticus. Well, that law and those curses for disobedience have come And God has kept His promise to judge Israel for their sin against Him. And in so doing, He scatters them among the nations where they find no rest and are in dread for their life. In verse 4, everyone used to come to Jerusalem for the great holy days and feasts. They would bring their sacrifices to Passover. But now, the roads are empty. The streets are vacant. The temple is gone. In verse 5, Israel, who was to be exalted and blessed, is now on display as a nation that shows the judgment of God. Israel is now lowly and subject to her foes. Verse 7, Jerusalem can only remember the good old days, the days that have passed. In verse 10, Israel was a holy land. Jerusalem was a holy city. The temple was a holy place. And inside the temple was the holy of holies, where the priest would enter on the day of atonement once a year to ask forgiveness for the sins of the people, to provide forgiveness for the people. But the enemies have burned it all to the ground. In verse 8, Though the suffering is unbearable, the prophet acknowledges it is deserved. It is deserved. Which brings us to verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Bread is a symbol of food. It is the basic necessity of life. The first ten verses of chapter 1 are summarized by pointing out that during the siege of Jerusalem, people are trading their most precious things for 
food, for bread. Now, we live in a society where that idea is foreign to us. We take food and bread for granted. We go to the grocery store, and what do we find? Food and bread, and in rich abundance. But during the siege of Jerusalem, the very rich are brought down to the level of the very poor. They can't get food any more than anyone else can. They are trading their treasures, the very things that are most precious to them, their property, their jewels. For us, it would be our cars. We would trade these things for a morsel of bread. This is how desperate they are. It is as if the Bill Gates and Warren Buffetts of Jerusalem are begging on the streets and trying to make a deal with their billions of dollars and they can barely buy any food at all. This is the desperation that they face. What makes the fall of Jerusalem so momentous is here we have the chosen people of God, Israel, whom God placed in the promised land of Canaan, a land where there was richly abundant food and resources. And what did God's people do with those blessings? They despised God. They rejected His blessings and in rebellion against Him ran after other gods repeatedly over centuries, over and over again. And though they were great among the nations, God has judged them and cast them down. The last portion of verse 11 they are crying out for God. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Their chief suffering here is not physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. Oh, their suffering was surely felt by them physically. They felt hunger. They felt pain. But that suffering was just a symptom of their depraved souls mired in sin and rebellion against God. They were the special chosen people and they despised God. Now in His justice, they are despised. And all of this happened to the people of Abraham to whom God promised 1,400 years earlier that He would give them a land. This happened to a nation God had redeemed out of slavery from Egypt. To a people God brought to this promised land, a land of rest, a land of plenty flowing with milk and honey. This happened to the place where King David had reigned on his throne. It happened to the place where the wealth of King Solomon had resided, where nations would come to hear the wisdom of this king. But now, the temple was gone. The place of sacrifice for the sins of the people was gone. The priests who could offer the sacrifices were gone. The holy city of God's people was destroyed. And God's chosen people who dwell in the land He promised He would give them were gone too. It must have seemed to them like the promises of God were gone. And for the first two and a half chapters of Lamentations, 
it seems that God is gone as well. Point number two, the judgment of Jerusalem is a warning to all. Verse 12, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. In verse 12, in the midst of this description of judgment, the attention of the prophet turns. It only turns for a moment, but it turns from the city of Jerusalem to those who are passing by. The prophet who had looked at the city now looks at those who pass by, the people who are just traveling through, to the nations who are watching this take place. And he says, look at this. Pay attention to this thing that cannot be ignored. It's as if to say to the world, this is not just something you can pretend doesn't happen or doesn't exist. When there's an accident on the highway, we can't help but look, can we? Every time there's an accident on the other side of the interstate, what happens? All the rubbernecking takes place, right? And the traffic slows down. you got to look, okay? Even when the police officer's got his lights going on the side of the road, got the guy out in the car and his hands are up like that, what do we want to do? We want to look. We want to pay attention, don't we? What's going on over there? When the fire truck shows up on your street, what do you do? Hop out of that house. I want to see what's going on in the neighborhood, right? The prophet is calling the nations to pay attention here. He's crying out to them as if to say, what has happened cannot escape your notice. So we now look at this thing that has happened to Jerusalem. And we cannot just pass by, but we must respond. How will we respond? How will you respond to what is happening to Jerusalem? Will you be like the neighboring nations and mock and laugh and be happy that they are suffering or will you be cut to the heart will you mourn will you sympathize with them will you see in her disaster the disaster of us all the disaster really of the whole human race this is not just a disaster for a small people on the other side of the earth this is a judgment of sin this is a judgment of sin that serves as a preview of the final judgment that is coming upon the world in the last day at the return of Jesus Christ. We must look and see. We dare not ignore it. We do so at our own peril. The return of Christ is not just a celebration of salvation. There will be judgment upon those who reject Him. Salvation and judgment go together in the Scripture. Point number three, the judgment of Jerusalem is brought on by God. Follow along with me as I read Lamentations chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. From on high he sent fire. Fire is a, is a symbol of judgment. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. Note who's taking the action here. It is God. These are God's actions. 
My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with. The attention moves from the suffering of Jerusalem in the first 11 verses. It now moves to the one who is afflicting, who is bringing the suffering to God, to God himself. He is the one who is taking the action. Have you noticed who is absent here? Who we don't see Blamed for this destruction of Jerusalem? Who would you blame? Who would you think? The Babylonians, right? They're the ones who brought the army to bear. They're the ones with the torches in their hands that set the city ablaze. They're the ones who loaded everybody up on wagons and shipped them back to Babylon. Curiously, they're not mentioned. Matter of fact, they're not mentioned anywhere in the book of Lamentations. Why? Well, this prophet knows that this is not ultimately about the Babylonians. It is about God. He has brought the judgment. The Babylonians are but his tool. Sure, many cities have been destroyed in history and many terrible things have happened to people. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, chronic disease, cancer. And like the blindness of the man in John chapter 9 or the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed many in Luke chapter 13, most of these are the consequences of sin and death having entered into our world at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. These serve as constant reminders to us of the temporary nature of this life and spur us to remember that the day of judgment is coming and and urge us to repent and turn to God. But this judgment on Jerusalem here in Lamentations is a direct judgment of God on those who have violated His law. These people sinned against God and God is bringing judgment. These cries and pleas to God, these laments to God continue clear through the second chapter in the first part of chapter 3. We see tremendous suffering and Israel dragged into exile. Yet no confidence of faith is expressed towards this God. Not a single indication that God is going to respond or pay attention or care and answer His people. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18. This summarizes the whole first part of this book. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished 
so has my hope from the Lord. Here in these two verses is the summary of the first half of the book. He is in despair. There is no peace. There is no happiness. There is no hope. And it's that way through most of the rest of the book as well. We're about to jump into a shaft of light that comes into the middle of this book in chapter 3. But it's pretty dark. And you've just heard a few verses. I've been studying the whole book all week. This is hard stuff. It is hard stuff. That brings us to point number four. For while God was showing all the people through Israel, all the people of the world through Israel, the consequences of sin, and making sure that we understand that human sin and rebellion will be exposed and it will be judged, and God's wrath will be dispensed against it. Yet here we have the shining light in Lamentations. The great faithfulness of God, point number four, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 39. In the middle of the chapter, in the middle of the whole book of Lamentations, we find a marvelous expression of faith in God. Now, in acrostic poetry like this is, the main point is in the middle. It's not like our writing where we put it at the end usually. It's in the middle. So here we have, in the middle of chapter 3, in the middle of the entire book, the core of the message of Lamentations. Just when it seems we've hit bottom, the poem turns into an amazing and beautiful series of stanzas of verses. Follow along with me as I read chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. What does he remember in the midst of his despair? What comes to his mind? Well, it's verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The salvation that he describes here, the work of God in salvation, really the work of Christ through the cross, is not something that comes because of casual or flippant change of attitude or perspective by people. Not thinking that sin is a little thing. Not understanding that sin is just something I can blow right on past. No, sin is a terrible, horrible, ugly thing. And this salvation 
comes to us in the midst of it. This ray of light is shining through the darkness. As sinners, we don't realize or appreciate the trouble that we are in. As sinners, we are in the midst of the worst situation imaginable. That's the bad news. But in verses 22 to 24, the prophet recalls that the love of the Lord never ceases, that His mercies never come to an end. He recalls that the love and mercy of God is constant, but at the same time, it is new every morning. Each day will reveal to you new glories of the mercy and love of God in your life if you have eyes to see it. God's love and His mercy are so great we will never get our arms fully around it. It reveals new dimensions to us day by day. Well, what is the basis for this hope that is expressed here? Well, it doesn't really say in Lamentations. He just lays it out there for us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. But surely they are based in the promises to Abraham. In the promise that a prophet like Moses was yet to come. In the promise of God that a king will again sit on the throne of King David. In the promise of a Savior, of a Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 53 from the great prophet Isaiah. But given the totality of the judgment and defeat, a greater descendant of Abraham, a greater prophet than Moses, a greater king than David is in view here. As Christians on this side of the cross, we know that these promises of mercy and comfort could only be fulfilled through a coming one, a coming Savior, a Messiah through a man, through a man who suffered the ultimate sorrow, the ultimate grief of bearing the full measure of the wrath of God on the cross. Isaiah 53 tells us of the Messiah that he will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Sounds a little like the first two and a half chapters of Lamentations, doesn't it? Christ is the embodiment of sorrow, of grief, of the wrath of God. He took it upon Himself. What did Pontius Pilate say before the people? Behold the man, this man who was also God, this Jesus who had already been beaten and flogged and soon would be hung on a tree as he was cruelly put to death by crucifixion. This Jesus, who knew what it was to be rejected by his people and to be rejected by his Father. You see, our Lord Jesus drank from the very cup of God's wrath against sin. Yes, we can even say our Lord Jesus exhausted the cup of God's wrath for his people. He took all of the wrath of God for his people and their sin upon himself. Christ's suffering and sin-bearing, culminating in His cry from the cross, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Reminds us that Christ suffered intensely and completely and totally for our sin. But as we're reading Lamentations, remind yourself, Christ also suffered for the very sin that the book of Lamentation mourns. Those who find the steadfast love and mercy of God in Christ are comforted even in the midst of the darkest circumstances. And what is the response of the godly man who knows God's steadfast love and His never-ending mercy? Look at verse 25 with me of chapter 3. What is the response of the godly man? The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him, when suffering is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. You see, the godly man here responds by patiently waiting for the Lord, by seeking him in the midst of trouble as a shelter and refuge from the storm. The godly man sits, yes, the godly man rests in humble humility under the mighty hand of God and does not return insult for insult or evil for evil, but returns insult with grace and peace and mercy and tenderness. Isn't it remarkable how similar the Old Testament description of the godly man trusting in God sounds so much like how the New Testament describes what should characterize us as believers in Christ? Read Ephesians 4 this afternoon. The parallels are uncanny. The faithful Israelites were sent to exile and were told to wait there, to bear the yoke for a time. Jesus and the apostles tell us as Christians to wait on the Lord, to wait patiently, to wait quietly, to bear the yoke of burdens and suffering, for the Lord promises us that He is growing our character our endurance and patience through our sufferings. And He promises He will use it for His good. Now, He doesn't promise that only good things will come into our lives. He never promises us that. But He does promise that all things will work together for good to us. The next few verses of the poem react to what has just been said by pointing to God's justice, to His sovereignty over all things, and to our own responsibility for sin. Verses 31 to 34 find the prophet speaking from the perspective of a man of faith with confidence in God as he urges his fellow Israelites to turn from despair to God. Verse 31 For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. 
for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? In verses 31 to 33, he reminds them of God's compassion and love, even in suffering. In verses 34 to 36, he reminds them of the justice of God. In verses 37 and 38, he reminds them of the sovereignty of God. And in verse 39, he talks about man's responsibility for his sin. In this context, surely the prophet has heard the complaints from the people questioning whether God really cares and questioning the justice of God and the sovereignty of God in the midst of such dark days. Well, here God gives an answer. When we wrestle with the questions of evil, when man complains about his situation in this broken world, the discussion always comes back to God's justice and fairness in all of this. God's reply in these verses is to tell us to stop questioning his justice, to stop questioning his sovereignty, and to instead look at the real cause man's own sin. Look again at verse 39. Why should a man, why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. The answer to the question is, we should not. Like the Israelites, we are sinners who deserve the judgment of God. It is not ours to place ourselves above God and judge Him but to submit ourselves to him. Well, when faced with the pain and destruction and brokenness of this world brought about by sin, we are reminded when we read Romans 8, verse 32. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 32 as we come to a conclusion this morning. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 32, gives us God's solution to the problem. Gives us God's solution to our problem. Paul writes, He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? You know, someday, maybe sometime this week, or maybe you've already been asked this by somebody, Someone's going to say, how could a loving God had allowed this to happen? And maybe they know you're a Christian and they want to poke at you a little bit and they say, wait a minute, I want to ask that question a little different way. How could a loving God have caused this to happen? Brothers and sisters, Romans 8.32 gives us God's response. And that response is simply this. God says, let me give you a bigger crisis to think about. Let me give you the greatest tragedy 
to think about. The greatest tragedy ever to come to this world. The greatest suffering ever to come to this world. It's the death of Jesus. After all, the only begotten Son of God gave up His place in eternity. This Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life, who kept God's law perfectly, was put to death to pay the penalty for our sin. Well, who did that? Let's read it again. He who spared not his own son, he who gave him up or delivered him up for us all. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that it's God the Father who didn't spare his own son. It's God the Father who delivered up Jesus Christ on the cross. The early church got that right. Remember, when Peter is accusing the multitudes at Pentecost in Acts 2 of their complicity in the death of Christ, Peter says to them, Men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. In other words, Peter is saying, this is God's plan. This is God's design. This is God's doing. And yet, you, O oh man, are responsible for your own deeds, for your own sins, for your own rebellion. Yes, for your own evil. So how could it be that God will allow? No, how, how could it be that God would cause such misery as we read about today? as we see in this world? Well, a better question to ask is, how could God deliver over His only Son to redeem us from all this suffering? You see, it is that act of giving on the part of God that takes out of all question His goodness and love so that when we see the inexplicable things of this world for which we do not have answers, and I don't have specific answers as to what God is up to in the many and varied tragedies and sufferings in this world. But I do know what the Bible tells me. It tells me that the first Adam sinned and in doing so brought death and pain and suffering into this world. God reminds us over and over in the scriptures of the consequences of sin in this world. And there is real and deserved judgment for sin and its companions suffering and death will inevitably, inevitably come along with it. And I do know this as well. God's love and His goodness and His kindness are beyond question because He gave His own Son and with Him He has given us all things. And that is why Paul is able to say just a few verses later in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God has already put into place the very plan whereby 
he will redeem us from all our sins and whereby he will comfort us and deliver us from all our sorrows and bring us to a place where there are no more tears and there is no more pain. And that plan is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And for all of those today, no matter what they've lost, if they trust in Christ, they will find that with him, God will give them all things, just as he promised. For the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Great is your faithfulness. Let us pray. I pray, Father, that we would not store up for ourselves treasures on earth, but rather our hearts would be transformed by thoughts of the heavenly treasure that is ours. Our hearts have been touched this morning by the suffering of your people. We confess that memories of suffering, either from the past or present, are seared in our minds. We pray that by the Holy Spirit we would look at our sufferings and at you and discern your love for us in the midst of them. Give us eyes to see that, Father. Give us your heavenly wisdom. If not to understand your ways but to rest in you. Our hope is not in an earthly Jerusalem or in an earthly temple or in any earthly circumstance, but in you, in Jesus' blood and righteousness, His blood shed for sinners such as we are. We pray you would grow such hope in our hearts And it would shine forth in our conduct and in our lives. With great thanksgiving for what you have done in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.